from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Good morning. My name is Becky Kelly, and I'm currently serving as an elder on this session at, here at First Pres. Please join me in the call to worship. You are the God who creates and recreates, who judges and delivers, who accepts and transforms. We long, O oh Lord, to experience your presence. You are the God who acts in history in each of our lives, who is made known in scripture and has made flesh in Christ. We long, O Lord, to know you more. You are the God who comforts the sick, welcomes the outcast, and brings peace to a broke and wounded world. We long, O God, to be filled with your love. Friends, come, let us worship God. Please turn with me in your P Bible to Psalm 86, which can be found on page 514 in the Old Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am devoted to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. You're my God, be gracious to me, O Lord. For to you do I cry all day long. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call on you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my cry of supplication. In the day of my trouble, I call on you, for you will answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and bow down before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart to revere your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O Lord, the insolent rise up against me. A band of ruffians seek my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant, Say the child of your serving girl, show me a sign of your favor, so that those who hate me may see it and be put to shame, because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 10, which can be found on page 77 of the Old Testament portion of your pew Bibles. 
Listen now for the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. And do not let anyone be seen throughout all the mountain, and do not let flocks or herds graze in front of the mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the former ones, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name the Lord. The Lord passed before him, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children until the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head down to the earth and worshiped. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O God, I pray, let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. He said, I hereby make a covenant. Before all your people, I will perform marvels, such as have not been performed in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you live shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we might see light, in your truth that we might find freedom, and in your will discover your peace through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In his best-selling book, The God Delusion, evolutionary biologist and avowed atheist Richard Dawkins takes up the very topic of the sermon this morning, the God of the Old Testament. Dawkins argues in this book that it is nothing other than a delusion for a rational, intelligent person to place her faith in this sort of deity. The God of the Old Testament, Dawkins writes, is arguably the most unpleasant character of all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, geniocidal, filiocidal, megalomaniacal, capriciously malevolent bully. Elsewhere, Dawkins goes on to call the God of the Old Testament a psychotic delinquent, an appalling role model, and my favorite, a cruel ogre. I kind of wish Dawkins would tell us what he really thinks about the God of the Old Testament. Now, I suspect that few of us would be inclined to agree with Dawkins' portrayal of the God of the Old Testament. In fact, I suspect that we would be inclined to either dismiss or denounce his characterization 
as the words of a disgruntled atheist who has an axe to grind against Christianity. And yet, and yet, I suspect that if we were really honest, that if we weren't just giving our Sunday school answer, I suspect that many of us have our own doubts about the God of the Old Testament. Whether teaching seminary courses or Sunday school classes, I often find that faithful, well-meaning Christians struggle to know what to do with the God found in the pages of Genesis through Malachi. The God of the Old Testament, after all, and as the rumor goes, seems so different than the God of the New Testament. Jesus, after all, hugged the children and blessed the widows. Jesus forgave sinners and welcomed outcasts. But not so with the God of the Old Testament, or at least, again, that's how the rumor goes. What with the sending of floods and unleashing of plagues and piling on of law after law, the God of the Old Testament can come across as a bit strange, a little grumpy, and, well, at times, kind of unchristian. Is this the sort of God we want our kids to learn about on Sunday mornings? Is this the type of deity who makes us want to roll out of bed and make our way to Midtown around 1045 on a Sunday? Is this the kind of God we would want to pray to or sing hymns about? Is this God of the Old Testament a God worth believing in at all? The chapters leading up to Exodus 34 set the stage for just the sort of wrathful, vengeful God Dawkins describes and we worry about. You see, Israel had just gone through one of its most horrific national scandals. Just months after being liberated from Egypt, just weeks after Moses received the Ten Commandments, the people led by Aaron created an idol in the form of a golden calf, and they worshipped it and they bowed down to it, and they danced around it, and they sacrificed to it as if it were a god. As some of you know, I like to call this whole event Kefgate. In this moment, we expect God to take quick and decisive action. We brace for a flood, a swarm of locusts, or a consuming fire. But instead of any of those things, what we get is a proclamation. A proclamation about a God who sounds very different than the so-called God of the Old Testament. The Lord passes before Moses out of the cloud and proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Now, if we didn't know any better, we might guess that this sort of divine description comes right out of the pages of the New Testament. It sounds a little Matthew-like to me, or perhaps we'd find it in Acts, or maybe even in the book of Philippians, but here it is in our Old Testament. Here it is in the book of Exodus. In chapters dealing with scandal and sin, we find a testament to God's loving and forgiving character. Here on the summit of Sinai, in the midst of long lists of laws and detailed instructions about the tabernacle, we find a beautiful poetic recital about God's grace and God's mercy. 
It's a short text, but I think it can go a long way in unsettling our stereotypes about what the God of the Old Testament is really all about. In place of Dawkins's petty and vindictive God, we find a God who is said to be merciful and gracious. These near synonyms capture, I think, the tenderness of a God who embraces his people as children. Now, you need to excuse me a second. We need to do just a little bit of Hebrew together this morning, but bear with me. The word merciful in Hebrew, rachum, is very close to that of this Hebrew word for a mother's womb, rechem. In fact, merciful here is really just a metaphor that means something like mother-like compassion for a child. This is the God of the Old Testament. The description continues by calling God slow to anger, and we need to do just a little bit more Hebrew. The Hebrew says that God is not slow to anger. The Hebrew says that God is long of nose. Now, when I think of long of nose things, I think of Pinocchio, and I think of a metaphor for lying, but not so in the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, the metaphor for anger is to have a burning nose. So when Moses gets angry at the people for the Calfgate scandal and he throws down the tablets of the covenant, it says that Moses's nose burned. The nose was a wick. And if your nose was short, you were inclined to anger, but not so with God. God is a long-nosed God. God has a long wick and is slow to anger at Israel and at us. That God is long of nose, though a little bit odd, is a beautiful image of divine patience, or as the KJV puts it, long-suffering. One of the overarching themes of all of the Old Testament is that God is in relentless pursuit of a people prone to wander through Egypt and exile, through idolatry and indifference, God is slow to anger and abounding in love. This is the God of the Old Testament. And it's a God that loves us not just with any love. God overflows with a covenant love, a love that is neither fickle nor fleeting, a love that is lasting and loyal. A love, as the text tells us, that extends not just to the people at Sinai, there with Moses, but down through the ages to thousands of generations, to David and Daniel, to Mary and Martha, to Peter and Paul, and to me and you and this whole church, we are caught up in the generation-spanning love of this God of the Old Testament. The text also affirms that this is a forgiving God, not the sort of vindictive, vengeful, petty God that Dawkins describes and that we worry about. What is of note here in the description is that the author has carefully used all three words in Hebrew that categorize sin. Sin, iniquity, transgression. The point is that God covers it all. There is no mistake, there is no failure, there is no sin, there is no wrongdoing that is not unburdened by this gracious, merciful, and forgiving God of the Old Testament. And yet, Exodus 34 also reminds us that God by no means clears the guilty, but visits the iniquity of the parents up to the third and fourth generation of kids 
I don't like this part of it. I wanted it to end a half verse earlier. It would have been an easier sermon. And maybe we suspect that this is where that wrathful, vengeful God shows up. Maybe this is where the ugly ogre of the Old Testament rears his face. But I don't think so. In the context of forgiveness, this declaration reminds us that God does not neglect justice. This is not an anything-goes sort of God, but a God who takes a stand against evil and against oppression and against suffering. And yet, even here, the text is careful to point out that the extent of God's just punishment pales in comparison to the extent of God's forgiveness. Remember, God's just judgment might extend to the third and fourth generation, but God's forgiveness reaches out to the thousandth generation. I don't know about you, but I like those odds. And I wonder, I wonder what it would be like if we as God's people could model this balance. If we could forgive one another 300 times for every one time we say a word of judgment against one another. We might be a different sort of people if we did that. In light of all this, it is hardly surprising that Moses' first reaction to hearing this proclamation is to bow his head down to the earth and to worship. In Exodus 34, we find a God worth believing in, a God worth praying to, a God worth teaching our children about. And what's more, the description of God we find in Exodus 34 is echoed again and again and again and again all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. In the psalm that we read this morning, this text is cited in the context of a plea for help. In the psalmist's mind, citing this verse was a way of urging God to come onto the scene and to act in a way that was consistent with his character. In other psalms, we hear this same verse cited in doxology. It is the reason to praise God because God is like this. In Isaiah, this declaration about the nature of God is the basis for hope in life beyond exile. And if you remember last week in the fourth chapter of Jonah, we actually heard this verse as well. Now, Jonah doesn't cite it as a plea for help. Jonah doesn't cite it as a doxology. Jonah cites it as a complaint because the very reason Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, the very reason why he flees to Tarshish and goes the opposite direction is because he knew God was a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. You see, Jonah had a God of the Old Testament problem. He wanted that cruel ogre of the Old Testament to show up in Nineveh. And he didn't like the fact that what he got was the real God of the Old Testament. Throughout the Old Testament, the words of Exodus 34 function as a basic confession about who God is and how God acts towards humanity. It's a description that rings true of the God of the Old Testament. It's a description that rings true of the God of the New Testament. In fact, of course, they're the one and the same God. There is no God of the Old Testament and God of the New it's just God. In the end, then, Exodus 34 reveals that Dawkins's view of God is nothing more than a dangerous caricature of who the deity really is. 
Growing up in the Philly area, we would vacation at the New Jersey beach every summer. Tony and I would say we went down the shore every summer. There on the boardwalk of Avalon and Sea Isle City and Point Pleasant, you could almost always find an amateur artist who for five bucks or so would draw for you a cartoon caricature of yourself. My brother and I loved these sorts of things in the midst of funnel cake and custard. We loved getting the caricatures made. Now, like any caricature, the point was to over-exaggerate certain features and oversimplify others. So someone might come out with big ears and a big forehead and a tiny neck and small feet and large hands. It was a caricature. It was, an it was essentially a distortion of what we really look like. Now down the shore, caricatures are kind of fun and even at times funny, especially the ones of my brother were funny. Mine were fine, of course, but the ones of my brother, they were funny. But the only way a caricature works is if you know what the real person looks like. A caricature is not funny unless you know that the artist has exaggerated the ears or the forehead or the feet or the neck. If you don't know the real picture of the person, if you mistake even worse the caricature for a photograph, then you run into a serious problem. We start thinking that the exaggerated features and intentional distortions are actually what the person looks like. It is a case of mistaken identity, you see. And this, I think, is what exactly happens with Dawkins. And it's what happens with our stereotypes about the God of the Old Testament. We start allowing a character of God to replace the actual portrait of God that we get in the scriptures, namely in Exodus 34. And the results, I think, can be dangerous. Before going to seminary, I was a college campus minister for five years, and I would meet all the time with well-meaning, intelligent 18 to 22-year-olds who often would say, I don't believe in God. And my initial strategy in the opening years of my ministry was to try to argue them into faith, was to present apologetics or rationale or reasons about why they should believe in God, why faith made sense, why they should turn to this faith called Christianity. But it rarely worked. And so somewhere along the line, I started doing something different. Instead of giving the reasons and the answer for faith, I started asking a question. I would ask the students, Tell me about the God you don't believe in. And chances are, I don't believe in that God either. You see, what kept these students away from faith was not the real God that we get in the Old Testament, was not the God that we get in the New, but rather was the caricature of God that they have come to believe in. And I wanted to say to them, amen, be an atheist to that God. Don't believe in that God, because that is not the God of the Bible. Friends, there are difficult texts in the old and the new. There is violence, there is vengeance, and some of it is mixed up with God more than we would like. We need to be honest about these difficult texts. We need to be honest about not having all the answers. We need to be honest about the difficulty of interpreting ancient words in a foreign language. But we also need to go back to the text 
especially the Old Testament texts. We need to double check to see if the God we doubt in, if the God we don't like, is really the God we find there in the first place. We need to hear the more persistent refrain of God's goodness and mercy that is articulated in Exodus 34 and so many other places. We need to reject the caricature that so often pits the God of the old versus God of the new. And instead, we need to allow the Bible to help restore the full portrait of who God really is. For if we do, I believe that we come away with a healthier faith. I believe that we are encouraged to know that the real delusion is Dawkins. His view of God is a delusion. It's not the God of the Old Testament. If we do this, I believe we might just come away wanting to read the Old Testament a bit more, and I would be happy about that. And most importantly, if we do this, we'll realize that the God of the Old Testament, in the end, really is a God worth believing in. Amen. covenant and in mercy over and over again. Carry that knowledge so that it might guard your minds and your hearts and you might go in the peace of God. Amen. Amen.